0: Financial services. You can subscribe to our podcast on the Apple Podcast Store, Google Play, or at TRELIANT.com. That's T R E L I A N T.com. I'm Lynn Farrell, Senior Advisor for TRELIANT Risk Advisors. You can reach me at L Farrell, L F A R R E L L, at TRELIANT.com. Today we're going to talk about the five ways to be a wildly effective. Compliance officer, and I'm super happy to welcome my guest, Christy Grant Hart. Christy is with Spark Compliance Consulting. She's got offices in London and Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the podcast, Christy. Thank you
1: so much for having me. It's a thrill to be here.
0: Well, why don't you give us a little bit about your background and then we'll get into the five ways.
1: Sure, Um, so I started my career at Gibson Dunn. Um, I was a specialist in anti-bribery work in Los Angeles. Um, And then when Gibson Dunn began working on the LIBOR investigation for UBS in London and Switzerland, I moved there. Uh, and I've been in London for six years after marrying a Brit, so (laughs) decided to stay. Um, I've been a a chief compliance officer at uh, United International Pictures, which is a joint venture of Paramount and Universal Pictures in 65 countries. Um, And about a year and a half ago, started Spark Compliance in London, and we've now expanded to Los Angeles, focusing primarily on um, anti-bribery work and anti-modern slavery work.
0: Wow, that is such a great thing. Uh so happy to have you here today, and you actually have a book, don't
1: you? I do. Um, I wrote a book called How to Be a Wildly Effective Compliance Officer, um, and the reason that we met is because I gave a speech, a keynote, on that book um, here at the ABA conference where we're recording today. So um, I'm here to talk about ways to be wildly effective.
0: That's wonderful. And can we get your book on Amazon?
1: Absolutely. We can get um, the book on Amazon in bookstores um, or the Wildly Strategic Compliance Officer Workbook, which came out on May 9th of this year as well. Oh, wonderful.
0: And why don't you give us your uh, email address and your website?
1: Sure. So I am Christy, K-R-I-S-T-Y-G-H, at sparkcompliance.com, all one word. Um, or you can find me on compliancechristie.com, which is my uh, personal website where I do all my writing, speaking, and podcasting, etc.
0: Okay, that's wonderful. We're just so grateful to have you here today. Why don't we just plunge right in. What's the first way that our compliance professionals can be wildly effective? Okay.
1: Well, One of my very favorite definitions of a compliance officer is someone who protects the business in five years' time. So instead of thinking about the quarterly gains or whatever the shareholder price is gonna be this quarter, this year, your job is actually to protect the company in five years time. And if you think about it with that sort of longevity, you aren't looking at what's right right now, you're looking at what's right long term for the business. And that longer term thinking I think can really help you evaluate whether or not you should say yes to this new product or service whether the risk is worth it if you consider it in a longer-term scale. Even if you're not at your position now in five years' time, you're doing your job properly if you protect your company over that period.
0: So take a long view and think, in five years, will what I do now protect the company? Correct. Yeah. Great. That's a wonderful idea. and I don't think most of us naturally think that way.
1: No, and the people around us in the business don't. And and to a real degree, it's not their job to think that way, which somebody has to be looking out for the bank or for the institution in in five years' time, and the people who are invested as your shareholders want you to look at this in five years' time so that you don't have massive fines or fees or investigations, and I think it's a really good way of looking at your job.
0: That's great, because I did hear a business person one time, when he was sort of musing on a problem that the bank was facing, said, gosh, you know, once we get these loans originated or the product originated, we don't even think about it after that, which is so true. Someone needs to take a longer view, so that's a great one. What would be the second one, Christy?
1: The second one is really trying to look at the motivation of the people that you're speaking to and trying to influence. Um, I think a lot of times compliance officers you know, have the famous reputation of, we're the department of no, or um, say no first, then think about later <laughs> what you can do. Um, I think that the more that you can think, how do I align myself with the business's objectives? How do I make it so that I am telling the business um, to the most that I can what it wants to hear so that when I do say no, that it understands there's a real reason for that and that I am trying to align with the goals of the business? The more that you can get them to trust you because you're trying to help the business make itself successful, the better. Um, I'll give you an example from the non-financial services world. Um, Right now, um, I'm in London, and there's a new uh, data privacy law that is coming in with major consequences for European businesses. Um, And one of the companies that I work with has decided it wants to go from a more traditional product provider to being more of a service provider and using their um, information, big data, as a way to sell And so the compliance team in that company has realigned its goals to say, we want to help you be the leader in this data space, but we need to do it in a way that's not going to get us in trouble. Let me help you make this right the first time so we don't have any fines. And so by aligning those goals and making themselves strategic partners, they've been much more
0: successful. That's great, too. So basically gain the trust of your business folks by showing them that you can align. You're on team business. That's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. Right, so what's number three?
1: Number three is doing your best, it's related, it's doing your best to facilitate a yes. So when you start from how can we make this happen? How can we work together to see if we can't fix this problem? Um, Some of my work is in um, antitrust issues and competition issues um, where somebody will say, suggest um, alignment with a, a competitor to try to have a joint product, okay. How might we be able to do that? Might we be able to have a separate hived off joint venture? Might we be able to figure out some other way to make these things work? So coming at it not from how do I say no, but how can we say yes? And a lot of times that involves engaging the business person to say, okay, what you've suggested to me, I'm not sure that's going to work, but how else might we do this? So that you are somebody creating ideas and basically innovating with them to see if there's a way to make it fit within the law and be an appropriate solution.
0: That's a great one too. So the tip is to do your best to facilitate a yes. Mm-hmm. That almost rhymes, too bad, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what is the fourth thing? The fourth tip is basically the opposite of that. When you
1: do have to say no, do it like a band-aid, pull it off. Quickly and effectively. Um, I know when I was in-house, one of the most frustrating things that legal would ever do was to say, we'll get back to you. When, when are you going to get back to me? How long is this gonna take? What should I expect? And the sort of dragging out of the no to the point where you basically become dispirited and given up. If you know you're gonna have to say no, tell somebody as soon as you can that you are not gonna be able to do what they want to do so they can get to thinking about something else. Um, If you are somebody who's no means no, and you should be, then you should be able to say that and say, I am really sorry, but there's just no way we can make this happen. Don't drag it out and let them fester and have to call three times. Um, I, I had a compliance officer once who believed that they wouldn't answer something until someone had chased at least twice because they just said, well, I'm very busy, so if they if they really need to know the answer, they can they can call back again, and I just thought, oh my gosh, what a great way to alienate the business and make them hate you. <laughs> oh, I love that,
0: say no quickly. Yep. So that is a great, uh, a great method. What about number five?
1: Number five is about being a human. <laughs> um, Be a human. Be a okay. human, humanize yourself to the business. Um, I think a lot of times compliance sort of sits a bit ivory tower style separate from the business. And there's good reason for feeling like you need to be independent. You have to be somebody who can say no and isn't wrapped up in all the politics of the day to day. But that's not the same as not talking about your kids, your hobby, your vacation, going to coffee breaks, going to happy hours, trying to be involved as a whole person. Uh, what's your favorite sports team? Where are you going next, uh, next week? And All those kinds of things. When you see somebody as a peer, we both have the same you know, place we like to go on the weekends, our kids go to the same school, I went to the same college as you did, whatever it is, you are much more likely to talk to that person as a friend or as a trusted advisor, which ultimately I think is what all of us in compliance want to be. We want to be the trusted advisor to the business. And I think the best way to do that or the best way to start that process is to simply be as human as possible to show people that you are just like them and that you are part of their team in that way, not just on the pro-business side, but as a person as well.
0: That's great too. Christy, these have been great, uh, great suggestions and recommendations for our compliance team. Uh, As Christy mentioned, we're here at the ABA's annual Regulatory Compliance Conference, this year it's in Orlando, Florida. And one of the big themes of the conference has been conduct risk and financial institution culture two squishy things that are very difficult to get our hands around, and yet the regulators I know in the U.S. are really insisting that banks of of, uh, large and mid-size start looking at where they put conduct risk and how they can measure their culture and find when the culture kind of goes off the rails to direct it back going in the right direction. And then Christy has some experience with this, and I thought maybe she could tell us – a few things that might be helpful for our compliance professionals about conduct risk and culture. The UK, for example, has been uh, a leader in this area. They're much farther along than we are here in the U.S. as far as the regulatory expectations. So, Christy, what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that it is an incredibly interesting uh, new new space um, because I know certainly from my work in financial services that the very strict approach to each of the rules um, can be in sharp contrast to culture. Um, Because culture requires you to look at a number of different metrics and activities and ideas. Um, I think that the trick is to pull them all together. That was certainly a theme um, during some of the sessions. So you have to look at things like what are your, your whistleblower complaints, but also looking at your audit reports. Talking to your auditors sometimes, because particularly if you are in a place where they go to different branches and talk to different people or in different countries, they're gonna have on-the-ground experience where you can ask them questions. They're not gonna want to quantify it and report to say this management is bad or you know, there's a really toxic environment here. They'll never write that down. But if you have a good relationship with them, there's the possibility they'll tell you about that kind of information when you're seeing them. Um, you can also do some really interesting work with surveys. So anonymous surveys certainly um, or surveys of a a certain population that you can extrapolate that information about things like um, the classic question, have you seen any misconduct or um, bad activity? If you did, did you report it? If not, why not? Are you afraid of retaliation? Have you never heard of the non-retaliation stance that the bank has? Do you not believe that anyone will actually follow that? Um, Do you think that there is uh, no way to protect your confidentiality? There's a lot of really interesting things to find out. Uh, One of the things that we found in our work that is the most problematic is this idea of institutional justice, where individuals say, I don't believe that if I'm at a low level I will be treated the same way as someone at a higher level, which is a perennial problem. But if you know that's a problem because you've quantified it, then you can start to talk to that. So information is extremely powerful, getting the kind of culture information and really facing it, being willing to look at it and say, okay, what areas do we have problems? Do we have collegiality problems? Do we have sexism and discrimination? Do we have a hostile culture? Are we facing the kind of things that Uber is where it's so dog eat dog that nobody's nice to each other and people don't want to come to work? What are we really dealing with where we are um, able to conquer that or communicate to it?
0: That's great, you know, I'm not a culture expert, but if you go into a large institution or a medium-sized institution even, and, uh, and for sure you can tell the culture immediately in a smaller organization, but uh, i just thinking about my jobs in large institutions and you go in there for uh, several months and you start talking to people all the way down the line, it's quite easy to get just a feel for the culture. And one of the things that that I've said here at the conference is that we have trained our banks in the U.S. to be so technically focused on the technical regulations that people sort of check their ethics at the door and just say, well, as long as I comply with these technical rules, because we've trained them over the years to do that. And there have been many instances where I've gone into an institution and... There's been a problem, and I'm helping them remediate that problem, get to the bottom of it. And you talk to the lower-level individuals, the people that have talked to the customers, that have manned the call center to try to explain something that happened, and you say to them, you know, you get them to tell you what happened, and then you say, what do you think about this? A lot of times they say, well, it isn't really fair, but this is what I have to do. Yeah. So they know. Oh, they it's always know. Not helping the customer. Right. And so my experience has been someone down there always knows it's wrong or not helpful at, at the best, but they feel powerless to do anything about it mm-hmm. because this is their job. And in a lot of cases, it's within the scope of the technical regulations. It's just not helpful to the customer or, in fact, it ends up being deceiving to the customer and, therefore, the bank gets caught under UDAP instead of a technical regulation.
1: Yeah. I think that the more that you can ask, it's why the culture surveys are so important or why getting a, focus groups are another great way of doing it. Getting people into a room, serving them pizza and basically (laughs) saying, tell me what you really think. Um, You know, we're not gonna put your names anywhere. Um, The the basic question, have you seen anything you thought was unfair can produce enormously powerful evidence about what is going on. If If you get the same answer from three different regions, you have a problem Right? Or you get eight people saying that manager is terrible, um, and I've, you know, but what am I supposed to do? The what am I supposed to do thing is amazing because somebody up higher needs to know that the people down lower feel like, but what am I supposed to do? Or I don't think this is right, but I've been told this is what I'm supposed to do. can really affect things because people get disengaged at that point. So not only do they feel powerless now, they feel not proud of their organization because it's putting them in an ethical bind. When you're doing something you don't feel good about with your customers or you think you're basically screwing people, it makes it so that you're not happy to work there, you are more likely to cut corners, you're more likely to start behaving in an unethical way because you feel like it's sanctioned. Now you're in real trouble when your basic employees feel like it's sanctioned to misbehave because what the heck, the bank doesn't care anyway.
0: Right, and almost every case I know personally, and there's probably exceptions to this rule, the top person has their name so closely linked to the brand that they do care. Yes. They just don't know. They don't
1: hear, they don't know. Some of the investigations that I did, which I will not name, um, were okay, take a look at the emails of the chairman or CEO and tell me if this person knew about big problem? The answer has never in my experience been yes. They don't. They don't know about the culture issue, the culture problem. They'll know about what's going on with the stocks or what's going on in terms of those technical rule violations, but they don't hear about the culture things because nobody thinks to tell them that the way that we're treating our customers is making a bunch of us mad or that we don't feel like we're doing the right thing because it's technically legal That's a big thing that they need to understand, because ultimately, it also affects the consumer relationships, assuming that there's a consumer part of the bank, that people won't want to be there with you anymore, and that becomes a major problem.
0: Right. Well, your advice has been so helpful here, and uh, I think that uh, what you do is going to be more and more in demand in the U.S., because we're just starting on this journey of trying to look at our culture and our conduct as a separate risk area yeah. in our financial institutions. So before we go, I just want to recap the five ways to be a wildly effective compliance officer that Christy has shared with us today. First is take the long view. Think about protecting the company in five years. Number two, gain the trust of the business people by making sure you take into consider their motivation, align yourself with them. Number three, do your best to facilitate a yes. And number four, uh, when you have to say no, do it quickly. Don't drag it out. Don't just hope they give up and go away. And number five, be a human. (laughs) Humanize yourself to those business people and see them as humans because it does affect the way that you will treat them and they will treat you. So thank you so much, Chrissy, for being with us. We really consider it a privilege to have you on the podcast today. And all of you out there, if you want to subscribe to Compliance Hero, you can do that at TreeLiant.com, in the Apple Podcast Store, or at Google Play. This is Lynn Farrell. I will see you next time.